Hey, Michelle, are you still around? Could we lower the lights just a little bit? Somehow? Yeah, not these so much, but the... Now that's a little too bright. Maybe some of the fluorescent. You could, you could put those back on. I'd like to be able to see everybody. Okay, let's all just get used to it. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like to add my welcome to everyone and Happy New Year. And uh, just want to, want to remind everyone here that uh, everyone is welcome here and, and all parts of yourself are welcome. Uh, all the diverse parts of yourself, all the diverse flavors of our humanity. I think of Spirit Rock as a, as a very welcoming, wonderful place. And it's a joy for me to be here. Uh, I am, to, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Howard Cohn or Howie Cohn, and I'm one of the original Spirit Rockers. Uh, been leading classes and like this and retreats for now. I just completed my 30th year, and I, I still feel as, um, as happy and as, um, um, yeah, as confident as I did at the beginning in the benefits of a practice and that there really is a way, uh, one way, I mean there are many ways, but this is a way that um, can lead to well-being and happiness. And, um, I've seen the the, the beauty of being able to witness literally thousands of people go through practice, and I have to admit that uh, that my sample group has um, been as much on day longs like this, but also uh, longer retreats where people get in the the habit of practice, and then they develop practice over many years, and you can really see the way the the dimness and the contraction and the heaviness that we often carry around gives way over time to, uh, to literally a sense of light and uh, a softness and a, um, a tenderness that uh, is our birthright and natural to us. And, and it's just a matter of where we put our attention. It's a matter of what we, um, you know, it's not so much a matter of creating something, it's a matter of, of orienting ourselves to our bodies, which are which are always here, orienting ourselves to the living present, uh, as opposed to being spending so much of our life in the what I call the imagined past and the imagined future, since neither of those really exist. Uh, they, they only exist as thoughts in the unfolding present. So if one orients oneself to the, what we call reality or the living reality, it, it's enlivening. We're alive, and it's easy to miss that, and it's easy to become deadened by um, being um, as um, to be being lost in thought. And often our thought is is thought our thoughts of worry. Any of you ever have any of those? <laughs> uh, regret, 
guilt, but often thoughts of some kind of limitation, some kind of self-judgment, something, some sense that there's something wrong. Any of you ever have that one? Any of you extend that thought to there's something wrong with me? Well, what we find in our meditation practice is, of course, we get to know that, that, stream, of, that stream of thinking. And instead of seeing that stream of thinking and making it real, we see that, it, that thoughts of ourselves, thoughts of our life, are not our life. They're thoughts. And we can see that, that this sense of limitation, this sense of un, um, yeah, unsatisfactoriness even, a sense of not being okay, is uh, th- there's no evidence for it in real time. And we find that in real time, of course we feel the residue of what we've been thinking about or how we've been viewing reality, but in real time the more we orient ourselves here, the more we start to feel a, as Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, called basic goodness, a basic okayness. When we're not referencing our sense of well-being to the imagined past or future. So even right now, before we begin this day, you might experiment with uh, sensing, feeling, noticing what happens after your last thought has ceased and before the next one comes. So when you're not, so you're not basing for this, at least for these moments, you're not basing your sense of well-being on what happened before or what's going to happen. You're just here. And you're not as easily defined right now. That may even be um, a nice relief as well, to be not defined by your past or future, just to be here. And notice what, what you feel when you don't uh, look back and you don't look ahead. Notice what what the sense is that you have. And I'm curious if there anyone else, anyone willing to say what what happens when you, after your last thought has passed and before the next one comes, what do you experience? No one here is breath. Fresh breath. Breath. Okay. That's fear. fear. Okay. Okay. Fear. It's fear. Space. Space. Anyone else? Peace. Peace. Calm. Calm. Empty. Empty. A little different than what we're usually saying to ourselves, isn't it? (laughs) We're usually saying to ourselves is something should be different right now. I should be different. I need to have something. I need to go somewhere. I need to be with someone. I need something, something. I need, I need, I need. But often when we, if we learn to inhabit the living present, interestingly enough, I would say 90, 90% of our needs are met. In fact, I often say all needs are fulfilled in a moment of being present. But we also have many needs, but they all take place in the present moment, our physical needs, psychological needs, emotional needs, everything happens here. We don't want to miss that. 
So the whole of our practice during this day will be as simple and the central ingredient of the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness is to orient ourselves to the living present. And what that implies, though, is that we, um, we let ourselves be. Sometimes this is called letting go. We let go into life the way it is right now. We let go, we let go of our, uh, for a moment, for moment by moment, we let go of our hopes, our expectations, our demands. And we let, essentially let everything go that comes into our minds and goes out. We let every sensation go. We let every mood come and go. And when I say let go, that doesn't mean get rid of. It means I don't, I don't engage with whatever comes into my experience. I, I, let, it, I let everything take its natural course. So you will, over the course of this day, have many moods that, that come. You know, every day, many moods. You'll have many thoughts. Some say that we have 65,000 thoughts a day. You ever heard that statistic? Mm-hmm. And that it's also said that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. <laughs> so you'll have many thoughts today. And when I say let go, it means to see them like clouds passing through an empty sky and begin to notice the thinking mind thinking. And notice how those 65,000 thoughts tend to think themselves. So, we, so, it's, so our meditative practice, or otherwise known as mindfulness, mindful attention, clear comprehension, is simply to notice the thinking mind. The good news about every, even the, even the thoughts and the feelings that torment us, in terms of our mindfulness practice, even those become the cause of our well-being. They become the cause of our awakening. Because we see that even the most disturbing thought is just a thought. The most disturbing feeling is a changing condition. And because it's a changing condition, it can't really define us. And even the worst sensations, they come and they go, and they're... um, they're not permanent, so they don't define us either. So a lot of the letting go that we will do in our practice of well-being and happiness is, is just letting things take their natural course and then using everything that comes, everything that arises in your experience today, using everything to enhance your experience of being awake and aware in the living present. So for that, you don't have to flex any muscles. You don't need to... um, The only thing you need to do is to... um, is to, first and foremost, utilize something that is the most intimate, some would call it primordial part of yourself. And that is the fact that you are aware. So if I asked you all right now to stop being aware, what happens? 
Stop it. <laughs> so the greatest good news is that this, that which we are cultivating here, mindful attention, sometimes interchangeably called awareness, is completely natural to us. Now, of course, it gets obscured by being absorbed in our imagination. But nevertheless, it is, it is our natural state. And I ask you to stop it, and you can't. Because it's so natural to us. So instead of creating this, we will, over the course of this day, uh, get used to it. We will hopefully stabilize our, um, our appreciation and sensitivity to what is always already here. So if I said, just let's spend the day just being aware, um, that's really essentially what we're doing. However, because our habit is to be so absorbed in our thoughts, in our misperceptions, in our hopes and our dreams, and sometimes miss this ever-present fact of being aware, we use the meditative tools, we use, uh, we use the method of mindfulness meditation to help us get used to this fact of being aware again. And we start that, that, I call it a reclamation project, where we're reclaiming our heritage. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. So we start this reclamation project by anchoring this attention that's always already here by anchoring our attention to something else that's always already here. And what else is always already here? Body. So this is what the Buddha recommended. That you direct this attention, you bring this attention that is completely natural to you, bring it together with your body. Of course, without your body, no awareness. <laughs> so these two are very inter, interdependent. So if you're feeling your body, knowing your body, you're, you're in, the, in the ballpark. We're going to bring these two together all day long. And that's going to be our primary anchor, is to put our mind in our body, our body in our mind. And this, the effect of this over and over again is that it brings, uh, it brings uh, harmony. It harmonizes our mind and body to bring attention together with our body. It awakens us to the life of the present moment and, and the um, present is, is vital. So different from past and future, which are mental, as I talked about before. So it orients us to the, to the living present, kind of brightens our lights, recharges our batteries. 
And it allows us to then, the good news is it's always already here. Good news is we have these wonderful, everything that comes into our mind can become our anchor. The difficult news, but that which becomes the good news over time, is that, uh, difficult is that what we will be visited by, if we experience the life of the present moment, will be visited by every habit of mind, the effects of every, all of our actions on our bodies and on our minds. We'll feel the aches and the pains. We'll feel the restlessness. We'll feel the, the excitement. We'll feel a whole range of feelings. We'll notice those 65,000 thoughts. We'll notice sounds. We'll notice a cacophony of, of experience come and go. And that can be difficult to bear. Uh, but that, that same experience, as we bring attention to it, um, will become the, the, incre- the cause of our increasing sense of well-being and happiness. It's the unique thing about human beings. Even our difficulties become the cause of our healing. And that's, uh, I, think that's the only, I think we're the only species that, that has that benefit. Our difficulties become the cause of our well-being. Just think about the things you've gone through in your life. What's really tenderized your heart? It's really clarified your understanding. It's often going through some kind of hardship. So you'll hear a lot of talk today about about, uh, the word dukkha. The word dukkha. How many of you have not heard the word dukkha before? Okay, the word dukkha is a Pali word, which is a kind of derivation of Sanskrit that means... um, it's been loosely translated as suffering, but it really just means, dukkha means unsatisfactoriness, unreliable, that which is hard to bear, painful. It's a kind of amalgamation of a lot of different flavors of, of challenges that all beings face if they're born. And it's something that the Buddha very explicitly said, we need to know about this. Because if you don't know about dukkha, your whole life will be about running from it. And you'll end up, the more you run from it, the more you'll end up stuck in it. So that's, uh, so you'll often hear if you haven't, if the farther you get from, the, from those who share the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of, of the Buddha, will think of, oh, that Buddha stuff, it's all about dukkha, it's all about suffering. But it's important to remember on this day of the Buddha's path to well-being and happiness is the Buddha was called Sukhiya, the happy one. And it's all about happiness. But not necessarily happiness in the way that we ordinarily think of happiness. It's not just the happiness of a good mood. Although that may be one of the, one of the flavors or the fragrance of, of the happiness of what might be called the happiness of freedom. But it's much more the happiness uh, that comes when we develop a wise relationship to the present moment. And our unhappiness is often dependent on an unwise relationship to the present moment. So for many of us, our 
relationship to the present moment is, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, says it's a, the present is um, just a place that we're passing through on our way to something else. Any of you ever feel that? Isn't it amazing? This is the only, pre- this is the only place where we live, but yet we're usually on our way to someplace else. It's craziness. He says, he says either it's a, a pass-through on our way to something else, it's a, an obstacle, or it's the enemy. Now that relationship to the present moment will give rise to mental dukkha, to mental suffering. A wise relationship to the present moment is one of, of opening, of non-reactive relationship. Saying, oh, the present moment is like this right now. Notice even when you have a pain in your body and you say, oh, pain is like this, rather than, uh-oh, hate this pain. Now, of course, that uh-oh and I hate this pain will come during your practice. But if you make a shift from getting bound up in that reaction to noticing, oh, there's my mind reacting to pain, then that even that reaction becomes something that, um, that softens our attention, softens our relationship to the present moment. I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> and I invite all of you to forget what you were... <laughs> forget what happened. Forget everything I just said. <laughs> and forget whatever... whatever is on your to-do list. Whatever your hopes or your expectations are and orient your life to the living present. So as I said, the Buddha's recommendation, the first step in our, at least in the meditative part of of the Buddha's path to well-being and happiness, is is to bring our mind and body together. So I invite you to find a posture, to refresh your posture if you're sitting still I find in in terms of finding a meditative posture while you're getting your cushions and finding your seat, just want to remind you that the formal part of our meditation today will be periods of sitting and walking meditation. The Buddha recommended that we put our mind in our body and our body in our mind in four different, in all postures, sitting, standing, walking, and uh, lying down. But the formal practice today will be doing sitting and walking practice. And each of those is an equal opportunity to uh, anchor our attention in our body. And I'll explain the walking after our sitting. But and as we go through the day, I will elaborate on the meditation instructions for sitting. And I'll give some basic walking instructions, which will stay with the whole day. And the sitting instructions will start with mindfulness of our body, 
mindfulness of breathing. It's the initial tool. It's not the whole of our practice. And then it will include mindfulness of other uh, discrete or individual sensations and flavors of sensation. Then we'll include mindfulness of, of states of mind, of, of, of moods, emotions, and then finally mindfulness of thoughts and images, mindfulness of sounds, mindfulness of, of sight, of inner sight and outer seeing. So inner and outer mindfulness until everything that you can experience will be um, part of your meditation. Before this initial sitting, it's ideal if you can find a posture that's relatively upright, yet relaxed. And I find it helpful to shift from side to side or front to back till you find a center point where it's most effortless to sit. And a and then effortlessness hopefully will be the cause of just letting your body go completely onto the cushion or the chair and letting all of your past and future drop to the floor. I'd like to invite you to start by feeling the contact of your rear as it touches the cushion or chair, point of contact with the earth. Feel the heaviness or the hardness or the pressure. Let those sensations fill your mind. And feel the sensations of your hands touching whatever they're touching. The lips touching. The eyes close softly. Feel the relaxed touch of the eyes. And sense the sensations of your whole body, a field of sensations. You might feel the living quality, the vibration or the pulsing. Feel the gentle stillness. And if you hover a little bit with this experience of your whole body, you'll begin to sense and feel the sensations that arise when your body breathes. And you don't need to help it along. You just need to feel from the beginning through the duration of the breath. Feel the sensations that your your body feels when you breathe. Just connect your attention through the duration of the in-breath and the out-breath. You may feel the breath 
most prominently as the air comes in and out of your nostrils. And even though that can be sometimes very faint, sometimes you will feel the, the gentle rise and fall of your chest or your belly. You may just be feeling the, the whole body as it expands and contracts. However it is that the life breath is felt, you just want to connect with that, breath by breath. Just this breath. And as a support for keeping your attention together with your physical, physical experience of breathing, it can sometimes be helpful to make a soft little mental label of in and out if you're noticing the breath at the nostrils. A soft mental label of rising, falling if you're noticing the chest or belly. And if you're using this little tool of mental labeling, it should be concurrent or at the same time as the actual experience. Just a whisper in the mind. In, out. Rising, falling. intimately feeling the sensations of the breathing as they emerge naturally, sticking to them, spreading out all around them, not missing any part of the in-breath and the out-breath, breath by breath.
mindfulness attention is both active and alert, but it's also receptive, receiving the breath, receiving the body sensations. Just this breath, just this moment. It's natural that after just a few breaths, you know, your mind will drift into fantasy, thoughts of the past or future. And you may not realize it until that point where you, you wake up and you realize, oh, here I am. So when you realize that the mind has wandered, this is good news. This is a moment of mindfulness. So no judgment about having drifted off. This is natural. But when you wake up to where you are, relax, appreciate that re-arising awareness. And in behalf of staying anchored to this living present, we connect again with our body and our breath. Gently, just like putting a puppy back on paper, we're trying to train it.
just this breath. Ten more minutes. Settle back into the moment.
So already deep pleasure for me in sitting with you. Glad you're all here. It's, it's, um, you may not appreciate this at this point, but it just for you to show up is an amazing act of generosity for everyone else here. Because there's definitely a lifting um, power in practicing together. It's very different than practicing home alone. Uh, even though that's a wonderful thing too, but it's really, really sweet to sit with a group, so highly recommend it. I'd like to do a little check-in after the first sitting. I call it the good news, bad news. Uh, and just wondering, uh, was it good news or bad news? Anybody willing to say? Both. Sleepiness. Anyone? Anybody sleepy? Okay. Anybody restless? Any body pains? So often insight, as one of my teachers used to say, insight at the beginning is usually bad news. <laughs> as you realize the effects of your life that, um, that sometime, somehow we keep moving fast enough, uh, stay distracted enough not to feel the underlying effects of all that distraction and all that movement. And when we do stop, the initial settling in, it, the, the practice can feel a little bit like you're, you've just entered a detox center. Um, and <clears throat> so it's important, though, that you see that uh, that can also be used as a, hopefully the cause of, of some self-compassion, some cause for you to want to care for yourself well and uh, not to live so disconnected um, from ourselves, because it's so easy. And just to have a, I just, I'm sure all of you think about this and read all the commentaries, but we have become so uh, disconnected from intimacy, from just the immediacy of, of just being together, just caught in our little machines. And I happened to recently, I don't know how many of you most of you have seen this movie, the movie from the 70s called Network, where they talked about what the effects of television, how people are basically living virtual lives uh, and seeing everything as a script of uh, a television show. And, and, it's, um, and this is exponentially increased when we live, dwell so much, so many hours a day in our, our smartphones and our iPads and our computers and uh, something's got to give. So the fact that you're here already suggests that you have the wisdom to know that and the loving kindness to give yourself a, some period of time to keep quiet and to bring your mind, heart, body together. Um, but take advantage of it. And you will, because of, as I said, the bad, it's often bad news at the beginning, our mind will become clever enough to start, even after the first sitting, planning our escape. <laughs> Any of you notice that? Yeah. Thinking about how long the day was, you know, and when it's unpleasant, the day will seem endless. And when it's pleasant, oh, I only have this much time to... So you'll see the way that time, play, time, thoughts of time, depending on pleasant and unpleasant, play in our minds. And hopefully we'll use all of it as, our, as, as a way of, of developing self-understanding, seeing the way our uh, mind can easily create a an obstacle or an enemy out of the present, and uh, how we can turn it into a, even that into a friend. 
anyone else want to say what you noticed or any questions that you had about the instructions of just bringing your mind together with your body, mindfulness of breathing? Um, please. Mind never wanders. <laughs> so I don't even have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely 100% wandering mind, just like it was the first day I practiced. The biggest difference after 50 years of meditation is that it doesn't bother me. I don't think it should be otherwise. So there's, there's less suffering added, mental reaction added to the the natural tendency of the mind to wander. That's what minds do, they wander. And, as you said and you answered in your own question, uh, the tendency is, because I'm not bothered by my thoughts so much, or by the fact that my mind wanders, that, that it, it actually quiets because there's less reactivity in the mind. There's, and with there's, if there's less reactivity, there's less tension. Tension produces more discursive thinking. So consequently, because there's less tension, there are more periods of quiet, and so longer gaps. And, and part of way, the way meditation is described is, is not unlike the, the announcement in the, in the subways in London, mind the gap. You just get to know that space when, when your mind is not filled with, with thoughts. And you'll notice that, that if you mind the gap, the gap gets wider, it gets bigger. And, and you start to feel the naturalness of just being awake without any particular object and not, not being particularly absorbed in anything. And, but from time to time you will become absorbed in just openness. As somebody said, when the, after their last thought and before the next one they felt empty or open. That becomes a natural, a natural state. And it is your natural state. Your, your natural state is not I'm so-and-so from so-and-so. That's your history. That's your situation. Your natural state is awake. Check it out. Please. A question about thinking. No, we can, if, if, you can, if you're mindful of thinking, then, then, then you're present, aware of thinking. <laughs> More often than not, our thinking, there's a lot of thinking going on, and, and mindfulness, awareness is not there. It, it doesn't go along for the ride, and so we can be, we're living literally in a, in a virtual reality. But from time to time, and increasingly if you meditate, you will notice that your mind is thinking. And then it's just that thoughts are just another, as I'll describe later in our practice, thoughts are just another sense experience. Thoughts are to our door of perception called mind or our sense organ called mind as a sound is to the ear. And it's something that we notice. So we don't, um, we don't, certainly don't undo that. And that's why after 30, 50 years, 
there's lots of thinking. And there's, there's both, I'm not bothered by it, and there's also more of a tendency to notice what I'm thinking in real time. Please. Sure, thank you. You noted yeah. sleepiness, the yeah, longest you've ever been. I found myself dozing met. off, and that, that became a little bit of a distraction for me, if, if that's the right word, and at the same time, a conflict with trying to stay present. How do you address it? Thank you so much for the question. Uh, mo First of all, the, the two most common, what are sometimes called hindrances, they're hindrances to being awake, but they're not bad. But the two most common hindrances are sleepiness and restlessness, especially when we start a practice. And this, in some ways, reflects the. Um, it reflects many things. I don't know why this is ringing, but it reflects both the. Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. It reflects a, a, an imbalance that all of us tend to fall into of having, um, of having our vital energy somewhat diminished from our life, being disconnected from our bodies. And um, so consequently, we tend to, when we start our practice, we tend to have low energy. And we have, uh, at the beginning, we have low energy and low tranquility. But when you start practicing, the first thing that happens when you practice in a group like this is you start to feel some tranquility. We all help each other bring, come into harmony with the present moment. So we start to have uh, tranquility. But when tranquility is mixed with low energy, as we joke here, it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. <laughs> We daven or we nod. And, but sometimes, depending on what's happening with our body, we have um, higher energy and low tranquility. And we experience the opposite, which is restlessness. A little bit more energy, low tranquility. So there's this balance between tranquility and energy that's, that will play throughout your practice from the beginning till the end. So when you see that you that you're, have some tranquility, you're drifting off, the Tibetans call that drifting off in meditation, they call it stupid meditation. <laughs> but it's actually highly valued because it says you're, you're, you're experiencing some tranquility. So your body is being healed, mind is settling, but you don't learn very much because there's not much awareness. So when you have higher tranquility and low energy, What's needed and what you can become your own authority in your practices, you need to, in some way, if you want to at least attempt to be more present, you don't create being present, but you, you, you apply little antidotes to help bring your energy up so that you can have tranquility with energy. This is called mindful attention and clear comprehension. And the way you do that is to either you can take a more precise posture. That, that will help. People who sit on chairs will tend to slink a little bit into the chair. And there's tendency much toward more tranquility, but not a lot of energy. Uh, you can 
open your eyes just slightly, leaving a, an empty gaze, not really, not looking at anything, but a kind of neutral, unfocused <laughs> eyes with slightly closed. And before you shift into that, that uh, empty gaze, you might want to open your eyes really wide, because that takes in light. And then you may want to continue to practice with your eyes slightly open. You may want to, as the Buddha recommended, stand up, do standing practice. Remember, equal, sitting, standing. And many times on a retreat, you'll see, and even in day longs, for when you see more experienced yogis, uh, there will be many people in the room standing. That little extra energy to hold your body up will balance the tranquility with a little bit more energy. So you can, some other traditional ones while we're at it, pull on your ears. But you want to do all of this mindfully so there's no break in the continuity of your attention. Pull, pulling, pulling, know that you're pulling. And then look up at a light. Seeing, seeing. So everything is, is part of mindfulness. See, now I can't see you. <laughs> <laughs> So you're right on track. Please. Silly question, but I never know what to do with my tongue. <laughs> and it's always wandering around my mouth. And I'm very mindful of not knowing what to do with it. That's such a beautiful description of, of what's being noticed. And, and I don't really have an answer to what to do with it, but I would continue to notice the wandering and maybe notice some anxiety that comes. Sometimes we get some involuntary movements. Sometimes people will swallow a lot or their tongue will move a lot or something will happen. And sometimes that's a way that we, we discharge some of the stresses of our lives, some ways that expresses anxiety. I'm not sure about your case, but mostly just to notice it and then notice any reaction to that. Where do you put yours? <laughs> Personal question. Yes. <laughs> In my mouth. <laughs> uh, it mostly rests, rests, I can't talk, and, and rests, at the, rests um, on the roof of my mouth more. Just rests freely in my mouth. So you can use it as a, as a mindfulness object to just relax the tongue and let it, do where it go where it wants to go. And if it lands on a particular place on the roof of your mouth, as mine did, just feel that contact. Every one of those moments is a moment that is bringing your mind and body together. So, Great question. In the very back, please. Here comes a microphone. Hi. Hi. So some of us have been diagnosed as attention challenged throughout our lives. Yes. And so when it comes to meditation, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it's a, a, a handicap or, or well, everybody, else. Everybody who meditates is attention challenged. So, <laughs> so you have a lot of good company. No, I mean, I, I deal with my attention deficit in, in lots of other beautiful ways too. But when it comes to meditation, it's just... Um, and then it doesn't, I don't want it to become this like struggle, you know, where like, oh, I'm punishing myself now for not like being able to focus on the simple practice of not being able to focus on anything else. 
But um, what I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is that is there other techniques that you would recommend that would ease people who are extremely challenged in staying focused in the practice um, a, a certain place that you think that would like be more like I mean of course you seek out places that are tranquil the low energy part is important too and so um, drinking a cup of coffee to stay awake probably won't <laughs> help with the tranquility because it does raise kind of anxiety in that way well sometimes Sometimes some it does, yes. But okay. anyways, back to the original question about the attention challenged well, people in this world. Thank you for your question. Well, I was dead serious when I said that everyone is attention challenged when it comes to meditation. And the method that, that I'm offering today is, is really to find some connection with your body as many moments as you are able to. And when, and when you see that your mind is unable to, when it's gone, begin to recognize that as, non, as a non-personal happening. Just as you realized, maybe when you received a diagnosis, it, brought, it may have brought some relief to, to have some knowledge that this is attention deficit. It's not your fault. Nobody, you didn't do that. It's not, there's no one to blame for that. So there's no one to judge for the fact that there's attention challenge. It's the same that if you meditate, you will see that you're the wandering mind or the being attention challenged is not personal. It's something that just happens. And, it, uh, and the more you understand that what your mind is doing, it's doing itself, the more you understand that, the less judgment there will be. The less judgment, the less tension. The less tension the more your mind and body will come together quite naturally. And everybody's practice happens differently. But try not to turn it into a competition to be more present. Try to be curious about what happens when you do try to be present. And even and if you've noticed 200 times that your mind has drifted off, or maybe 300 or 400, 400 times, those are 400 moments of mindfulness. Those are all successful moments. Those are not just successful moments, those are the pinnacle of practice, is when you notice that your mind has drifted. That There's no higher mountain to climb than that moment of waking up to where you are. And if it happens a thousand times, great. So what we normally do with that moment of waking up to where we are, the fact that our mind has been drifting, is we add an extra little narrative. Oh, I, was, I wandered. I, sh I did it. I'm a bad meditator. I should have been more present. Uh, every time I try anything, I fail. Uh, you know, this is just another failure. This is another sign that I can't meditate. I'll never be an awakened person. And maybe I should just end it all right now. And what happened there? Nothing. Except a little story that our mind added that turned a moment of wandering into a moment of mental suffering. So we want to notice that. But ideally, you want to move in the direction of celebrating any moment that you wake up to where you are. It's no, no special trick for attention challenged. We're all attention challenged. You know, and those diagnoses are, are wonderful up to a point to bring a, a sense of relief. 
But after a while, they, you, you want to be able to experience your life not through the lens of that identity all the time, but just, oh, this is the mind wandering. It doesn't define me. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. In the back, please. When you, he gets into a meditation state, he starts to calm down. Hello. Hello. Uh, I start to calm down, and then I start to get into a, like a dream state, and I, and I feel like I'm I've calmed my mind down, and then I'm starting to think again because I've kind of lowered my defenses, and I feel like I'm actually thinking again in that dream state. Where I become kind of, I'm wondering if that's natural, if there's a way to prevent that. I know you talked about getting up and so forth, how to recognize that and if that's natural. No, anytime that we're, that we're inclining toward dream, dreaming, it means that uh, we're inclining toward sleep. So our energy is low, tranquility is high. And it's just a, it's one of those signs that you're, you're starting to experience what we would call sinking mind or stupid shamatha. And it's, it's natural, completely natural and a sign that you may want to um, arouse some energy in some way. I don't know how to recognize when I'm drifting into that state, I well, guess. Well, it's hard to recognize. That's, it, that's one of its characteristics is there's not a lot of mindfulness. So in, until there, you start to be in real time aware of that, you will drift off. But at that moment that you, that you recognize that that has happened, even if it's several steps down the road, even if it's 10 minutes where you were frolicking on the beach in Mexico, <laughs> that moment is the moment where you then, because you are, because there is clear comprehension at that time, there's mindfulness, then there is that open space of creativity. There's a space of choice that you can make. But until, until there's enough mindfulness to, to see what's going on, there's nothing you can do, so there's no reason to judge it. And it doesn't mean anything about you. It's just the fact that your mind was sinking without, and mindfulness didn't go along for the ride. So, so we want to encourage, though, as many moments of mindfulness as we can to then be able to make wise choices about how to deal with this and everything else in our life. So, but that's exactly what should happen. But when you do wake up, do something that will help um, brighten your energy a little bit. Casey, Casey, and then I'll do both of you. Hello. Hello. Um, could you talk about the tendency to want to fix things? Um, so during meditation and, and when it might be beneficial. So let's say during meditation there's some sensation and it's pain and you want to fix it. Um, or you're thinking about a relationship that you have and you want to fix something or say something, and when that's beneficial and when that's perhaps not. Mm, great question. The, we love ourselves, so we, all, we want to provide uh, a loving, healthy, healing response to whatever we notice. So we don't want to, so the idea in meditation is we want to be very simple and see things very clearly, but we don't want to be simpleton, you know, just sit there. So, so there's a natural, it's part of our natural intelligence to discern uh, that something may be out of whack that can be, can be eased. So in terms of, 
I, I'd like to do both physical and the, than the mental. When there's a physical, uh, some level of physical discomfort, uh, our tendency is to, is to immediately uh, react by wanting to fix. And so that reaction is sometimes um, mixed with, the desire to fix is mixed with aversion, with dislike of, or fear of whatever it is that's going on. So with meditation practice, we try to first be able to learn how to accommodate something that is difficult to bear. So we first try to feel into it, to just feel the achiness or the burning or the stabbing or the itching or whatever it is that's happening. See if we can meet that with balance, with non-reactiveness. So then we can wisely respond or discern what needs to be done. So it doesn't mean that at a certain point you say, oh, this is, not, this is not a good position for my knee. You may find that. But so that, that impulse to fix, if it's mixed with aversion, will actually lead to more tension. If it's, mixed, if it's more responsive, a more discerning response, then it's, then it's um, sometimes very helpful. If you see that you're falling on your face and you're getting really mad at yourself for falling asleep and wanting to fix that, you're, not only are you practicing trying to arouse energy, but you're practicing aversion to sleepiness. We want to say, oh, this is sleepiness. This is, this is dullness. I, uh, let me just sense how, what this is like. And we include even the feeling of the fog or the cloudiness or the wet blanket. We notice that and then we, oh, let's, let's pick up the energy. So th- there's, no, there's no reactivity in that. So it's the same with... with mental events that we have, we start thinking about a relationship and often it will trigger some kind of fear or reaction. Before you go to the fix, first take in the full impact of whatever you're thinking about. So you feel, the, you feel what the engine is that's driving the thoughts. So you feel, oh, I'm scared or I'm, I'm really disappointed or I'm sad or whatever it is. You feel it. And then you, so you include the, you include the emotional uh, texture of that, the, of that experience, and you open to it. From that place, you can sometimes, there will be more likely to be some clarity about if there's something to be done or not. But when we, when we try to fix out of reactivity, uh, we want to notice that, oh, trying to fix. And... That just becomes another part of our mindfulness practice. Oh, there's the fixing mind. Anybody else have a fixing mind? (laughs) So you're not alone. You had your hand up. I think we will move on to walking after this comment or question. Kind of a related question. I was going to ask you, what do you do if you don't like your thoughts? Because I've meditated enough now that I'm somewhat accepting the fact that thoughts will come yes. and then I can see them and I go, that's a thought. Yeah. But sometimes some of my thoughts that come up, I don't like. And I'm talking about thoughts of anger or jealousy or, or resentment or judging. And I can, mm-hmm. I can see it and I can say, okay, that's anger. But then I get stuck in, I don't want to be that person. And so how do you move past? Well, the, I don't want to be that person or I don't like this. It's just another another form of thinking. And, usu- and just like I was saying to KC, if you, if you notice 
thoughts like that, you'll notice that they, they have a, an emotional reverberation. They'll have an impact. And so that what you would experience then is aversion. The thoughts are the secondhand version. They're the kind of discharge of an underlying feeling of, I don't like this, of hatred or ill will or something. So we want to feel that. And if you f- let yourself feel your body and its reactions, feel the pain of that, rather than building a story about how you don't want to be that kind of person, you'll feel the pain of it. And it, when you feel it, it can become the cause of compassion. Oh, this is painful. This is really hard. And I imagine the other person, the, all the other people around me who are hating themselves or hating their thoughts, they're feeling this pain too. And so you start to be much more sensitive to other people that are in a state of ill will. So it, it's, a, it's a compassion building exercise. Plus you can see that aversion, that feeling of contraction, it's painful. But you can also experience it as a wave, as a changing condition. Often when we start to have that reaction and we start building the story of I don't want to be that person, we turn it into this monolith, this big thing called I'm, I have these terrible thoughts and I want to be a different person instead of, oh, there's that wave, there's that wave, there's that wave. It's painful, but um, it doesn't define you. It's just, a, it's just part of being human as you have, uh, if you didn't, you have greed, Grasping in your mind, anybody not have that? <laughs> Wanting things to be different than the way they are? I bet you've had it a lot of times, even this morning. Mm-hmm. Aversion to the way things are, and delusion. The delusion is the building of the identity story around whatever's going on. If you don't have those, you're not one of us. Mm-hmm. And, and that is those three what are called the three poisons of the mind, is what everyone has to navigate. And that is our compassion food. Otherwise, it's all about strategies. And, and that just increases the feeling of dis-ease. Anyway, I, don't, I, I spoke a little quickly, but we'll get into that as the day goes on. Thanks for the questions, though. So as I said earlier in the day, the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness happens in, in all postures. It's all about orienting ourselves to the living present, bringing our mind and body together, learning to wake up to, our, uh, to the simplicity of what's happening in, a, in the present moment that's so different from the way we experience life through our reactivity. And then at the same time, seeing our reactivity and using that to wake us up as well. So one of the places that we can both see the simplicity of life and see our reactivity is in, uh, in the simple things of life that we do every day but often uh, ignore while we're busy thinking about other things. And the, the second part of our formal practice is that simple act of walking, the simple experience of walking. And we do the formal walking practice. How many of you have not had formal walking meditation instructions before? Many of you. Okay. I'll just do it briefly. And just want to say that uh, it's different than taking a walk. It's choosing an area about the length of of this uh, carpeted walkway here. 10, 20 steps long. And you can choose your own length based on your temperament, how you're feeling, but once you choose that walking area, you simply walk 
and try to walk mindfully to and fro, back and forth. Trying to feel the experience of your legs moving through space and the contact of your feet on the ground or whatever they're touching. Feeling that experience from the inside. So you're in each step, you're bringing your attention together with your physical experience. You're harmonizing your mind and body. You're anchoring your attention to the living present. You're creating the conditions for focus, for calm, for uh, insight. And the insight in this case is seeing the difference between the simple reality of a step and all the different things that your mind um, says about that. And we'll see, you'll, you can in the walking begin to see that our life is, is literally made up of six experiences. The totality of our life, sometimes in the sutras called the all, is that there is, there is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing in our body, and thinking and cognizing, and that's all. So everything that, we, everything that our mind does around those six experiences, is that all the elaborations are our personal story, our situation, uh, the way that we create um, virtual reality. So we want to see the difference between direct experience, which is just these six experiences, and all of our elaborations, and all of our reactions. So you will see in the walking to and fro, part of why we walk to and fro is because usually we walk and we're so busy going somewhere, our necks are tilted forward, we're, we're lost in where we're going. The whole point of this is that, to remind you that you're not going anywhere. The whole point is to arrive in the step you're taking, in the sensation you're feeling, that you're not going, that you, the whole point is to settle back into the moment. And the good news is that there is a, this is very transportable to a regular walk or walking in your daily life, is you'll start noticing that you're inhabiting your steps a little more when you walk. And that's a great relief because it's easy to miss. And it's a beautiful thing and it's an amazing thing that we can walk. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, some people think walking on water or bed of coals or whatever, but the, the real miracle is being able to just walk on this earth, on this dear green planet, as he puts it. So we want to experience that and not complicate it too much. But when our mind does complicate it, we want to notice that. And living life that simply, you will be visited by, oh, when is this going to be over? <laughs> Resistance, doubt, what am I doing? This doesn't seem to go anywhere. <laughs> um, it looks like the land of the living dead. Looks, people look like zombies. <laughs> Try to just enter into your own field, your own space, and just walk. Know you're walking. I encourage everyone to slow down enough to be able to feel the steps. So the key is to find a pace that's a little slower than natural, uh, because if you slow down a little bit, you'll notice more. And if you notice more, you'll, you'll get more interested. If you're more interested, you'll experience more energy for it. Your energy will actually build and you'll have more concentration, etc. But not at a pace that's too slow that you start tensing or too fast that you don't notice. So slower, a little slower, relaxed, balanced, one, a pace that you can stay in balance, and also interested and attentive. So all of that. So now have at it. Uh, we'll have about a 
we'll meet again. It's about three minutes after 11. At 11.30, we'll be sitting again. So it'll be about 25 minutes of walking, including the transition periods. And just walk to and fro. You can walk anywhere on the land. Uh, I guess until you may run into people who are finishing the other retreat, but pretty much stay around here. And you can walk in the back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.